Hey folks, welcome to the Papa Culture Pod. This is John. And we have a mini episode today with my friend and colleague who I just recently got to know a little bit more. His name is Justin Rossa. He he's been a father for a year and a half. And I met him and I met him when he was a staffer for assembly member Rob Bonta here in Oakland. And he has a history or a background in community organizing and got into the political field essentially to continue to work on finding the solutions and the community change that he really wanted to see. And so we talked a little bit about that. And I thought talking to him would be really interesting to hear how his experiences in the political world and community organizing also but primarily what that political world has impacted his fatherhood in the short time that he's been a father. And I want to apologize for the sound quality for this episode. I couldn't find a quiet space, inside space to for us to meet, so we met over lunch outside. So any background noise you hear are the winds and the dogs and the cars and the trucks and the people of downtown Oakland. Unfortunately, I had to cut some of our conversation just because the wind wasn't really cooperating with my microphones. But there's still a lot of our conversation here that was really deep and really interesting, and I hope you enjoy it. Philippines who came over in the 80s, born and raised in Riverside, California, which is down inland in Southern California, um, and was a community organizer. And Mm -hmm. now I'm a state level lobbyist, like legislative advocate. Yeah, but uh, (laughs) you you used to be part of, um, you used to be a staff member for Assembly Member Rob Blanza. That's correct, yeah. Um, And you were, were you in Sacramento or were you based in the district in Oakland? Based in the district office in Oakland, but because I had lobbied for nonprofits before and he had actually co-sponsored some of those bills, they had me working on legislation based in Sacramento, too. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how long were you working with him? Almost four years. That was my first time working for the institution, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. How was that? It was good. It was good. I'm also, it, when I'm asked questions about how things are, yeah. I'm generally try to find the good out of everything only because I feel like if you're not picking up a new skill from any experience or something then there's something wrong there so um, the job was challenging in the sense that I was working as a hybrid staffer between the district and the capital yeah Uh, not a lot of time uh, which is why I'm on your show because when fatherhood came along then I had to reassess the kind of time I had available for my family Um, And at the same time, you know, being back in a space where I'm consulting now for social justice groups to access the capital, basically, and move their priorities along. Those four years of having worked now as a legislative staffer are also 
beneficial Early for this work too. Yeah. yeah. So it was definitely worth it. And the way that I ended up there was because the nonprofit I worked for was having some funding issues. Yeah. And so I don't think had I not been kind of forced into that situation through like a precarious employment situation, yeah. I wouldn't have done it. But in retrospect, it just makes me better at my job. You, were, you said that you were at a nonprofit first, and that's kind of how it got you there. Like, how did you, how did you find yourself being in, like you said, the institution? Because you know, there's we both know numerous people in the community that's you know trying to do stuff for the community. There's different roads that we go, but not everyone goes into like a, a political staff. So, how did you find yourself there? Mm. Um, I think it's a great question and I feel like as a former organizer like I kind of had to make that break to get into this line of work generally even though it was for nonprofits like I wasn't going to be able to keep community organizing if I wanted to affect change at the policy level at the state so in that sense like that kind of provided a foundation where to move from like nonprofit advocacy and then to work as a staffer for an elected official um, to me it's kind of building off of a program that I went through so I went through Urban Habitats Board and Commission's okay. Leadership Institute right. and part of that program is to train equity advocates in the Bay Area region to serve on like boards and commissions right. so it, pay, it was applying that framework it provided me an opportunity to provide that framework and yeah. apply it to work as a staffer of being like you know I can approach this in the way that staffers traditionally do it, or I can do it in a way that like really works in partnership with community and in cases of legislation helps like give the advocates, because I was a former advocate, like inside info that whereas a staffer may not have otherwise. Right. Right. And so being a good uh, conduit, not just like a one way flow of information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of it was, a lot of it was this uh, desire to have that positive community impact, like the community change that you were, you had been working towards, for, in whatever you were doing before that. Correct, and I think it was like seeing and coming to a realization at a certain point of being like, there's always going to be dope community folks who are organizing. Right. There's not going to be a lot of like equity champions or people of color lobbying up in Sacramento and knowing that it's not an either or a proposition that we actually need people in all spaces because the institutions that we're trying to change are like deeply entrenched. And so if I'm someone who can step away from the organizing that I do actually enjoy and love to do this work, then why not? I mean, you said in, in institution or in the institution. I mean, it's a total in-system strategy, mm-hmm. right? Community organizing. It's not a big dichotomy. I mean, there's 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 gray space in the middle, mm-hmm. but there's still community organizing spirits in a lot of the people that we have elected. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they have to play a different role in um, in their role. But what you're doing is doing that community organizing from in system which is very different yeah right and i mean it's like it's an extension of basic community organizing principles of meeting where people are right Right. like all right the person's a bureaucrat or maybe they're a politician and it also means like if they're a person that can help you achieve what you want to achieve then 
try to find that common ground so that you can get it done. Right. Otherwise, we're just stuck with the status quo, and yeah. then what good does that do anyone? Right. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get to, like, what was it kind of your path towards, like, this, uh, this commitment to community? Community. I mean, just community change, community outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, many, like, first-generation Americans or many folks who grew up in working class, like, your childhood or my childhood was really just focused on, like, getting by or like getting into college you're not really right. thinking about systems institutions politics all of that um and so including undergrad like i majored in biology though i was like a social justice organizer on campus okay. where i went to undergrad and after that i did the peace corps where i worked as a community health worker because of that combination of biology background and and um, community organizing experience And it was in the Peace Corps where I was like, what is policy? (laughs) Right, right, right. And like, you know, even though I'm very much engaged in policymaking and politics now, like I did not vote in my first presidential election because I didn't think it would make a difference for my community. Um, And now in retrospect, it's ironic because like now I'm like everyone's got to vote all the time. And so it's, it's definitely been an evolution of being like, you know, unless we try to move these institutions or systems, then, you know, a community may get a win, but the adjacent community might not, right? right? And we see that all the time, especially here in California. We've got like 58 counties. Here in Alameda County, where we live, right, there's 14 cities within the county alone. So if we take that approach, then it could take forever to change some of these issues to benefit everybody. Right, Yeah. Yeah, and the policy thing is really interesting because, especially for local policy, local and, I mean, city, county, and then state, those are the things that affect us the most, either consciously or subconsciously, right? Like, the amount of stoplights that we have or the amount of street street lights we have in a community, in a neighborhood, Mm -hmm. the amount of trees and whatever that all that means is all, like, policy mm-hmm. that's we're not necessarily voting on those policies in general but we're, we're voting for the people or not voting for the people that are in, enacting those policies and it's, but we don't think about it like in that kind of bigger um, I guess in that bigger picture or more closer picture because we don't really get trained to think about mm-hmm. it because even in our government classes in high school it's kind of like you have the three branches of government kind of a historical civics history yep. but not really as much of a relation to your everyday life right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like many of these systems right while they are improving like in, in recent years there have been laws passed at the state level to update our public school education curriculum and there's actually a bill right now it's not law yet but it's moving through the process that would mandate ethnic studies curriculum at the high school level statewide so i think we're moving there and at the same time like it's building off an institution you know california was a very red state our two presidents were reagan and nixon right like we did not become the california that we are now until after 94 Mm -hmm. so 
some of the changes. Yeah, no, even after that. I know. Yeah. Been, I mean, Hop 187 was 94? Was I think it was 94. Yeah. There's been a lot of, or maybe it was, there's been a lot of, uh, there's like an anniversary around it. So people have been like looking at Pete Wilson, like a look back and stuff. Um, so, you know, change is also long and Dr. Martin Luther King said that, right? He said like the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice and particularly in a country that was built off the genocide of first peoples and the slavery of Africans. Like it's not going to be just like that. Yeah. 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 And and the, the healing and restoration and redemption of, um, not redemption, but restitution of that those generational effects yeah. it's not going to take one generation which well and you know <laughs> we all have our immigrant histories as well right like the philippines we were bought from the spanish after the spanish-american war yep. you know, we were under spanish rule for almost 400 years and then we were under american rule for 50 and the americans quote-unquote bought us after we had already declared our independence from spain right and close to winning it yeah yeah and I mean, in 50 years of U.S. government, official government, but it's pretty much, it's been U.S. control because of pop culture, because of um, the institute, like the 50 years of institute, what we're talking about, the 50 years mm-hmm. of institutional education, right? the way of thinking, the way of talking, the way of, that's, yeah. And even at a meta level, like, you know, Asian countries where there weren't white colonizers still value like fair skin yep. right so there are elements of white supremacy that pervade societies that even didn't have a, a, what, a European colonial it's really, it, I just came back from Hawaii for work okay. um, and so nice. yes it was nice <laughs> and also it was very kind of like a conflicted thing because um, you know I'm not super up on everything that goes on with the efforts in in Hawaii by the Native Hawaiians, mm-hmm. and I don't know a lot of the history. And just like most people, you go to Hawaii and you consume the mystique of Hawaii, mm-hmm. right? Palm trees, beach, great weather, La- uh, luau's. Luau's. Yeah. Never did a lu- actually. I did a luau because that was somebody else's thing. Um, <laughs> it's you know, which is part of it, right? Mm-hmm. There's a there's, for better or for worse, there's been a, uh, you know, through policy and culture and all this stuff and colonialism, a shifted economy that that is what is driving economy there. But I was less, it was definitely less of a conscious understanding of where I am. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, you go through Waikiki and you feel gross in general, yeah. right? Just because they wiped out international market they the, oh they did yeah oh, shit. i mean now it's like a very expensive oh, wow. basically each waikiki is like three four five six different like major blocks of like stanford mall uh, yeah so international market where it used to be is now uh, a high-end mall oh shit and so all those little carts got moved elsewhere and they're they're here and there, but they're basically not there anymore. Uh-huh. Last time I was in Hawaii, I was in 
one of the places we were at was an international market, but that was back in like 2000, the summer of 01. And so there's that, like, you know, now, especially now, being conscious of um, the politics of development, politics of gentrification. I mean, I understood gentrification from in general, mm-hmm. right? But not like the, the intricacies of it and what that me- meant for Waikiki, but mm-hmm. the is a really inspiring and interesting thing that a lot of the the scholars and community members and Native Hawaiian activists are doing there, um, not just in Hawaii, but across Polynesia, mm-hmm. about not just reclaiming, what are you talking about, like reclaiming and um, long-term continuance of culture mm-hmm. and the struggles, right? And like the struggles of, one thing that was presented during one of those evenings was this idea of like continued struggle even despite the quote unquote failures yes right like Native Hawaiians fought to keep um, fought out like some of the European folks Mm -hmm. and then the US came and then they tried to fight the US they jacked the country (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, then they tried to fight this and then they tried to fight the bombing tests in one of the islands right mm-hmm. but the importance is that they keep doing it not just for the sake of saying oh we, we we resisted high five it's like no it's a spiritual thing to themselves as a people but also to the ancestors and to the to the land and the air and the the sea that they still fight for the the humanity of everything that they, encompasses them mm-hmm which is, you know, what they're doing now in, at Mauna Kea. Mm-hmm. So there's that, and there's also this uh, interesting thing about some of the scholars worked with uh, people, like artists, and um, there's a book out now called Detours that just came out last week, which they gathered basically a decolonized guide to Hawaii. Oh, nice. Because they saw that Hawaii was heavily defined by Western, white, uh, travel books mm-hmm. which defines the Hawaii's iconography right so, yeah luau's everything we talked about anyway yeah. I'm kind of babbling on about that but it was really interesting it, it carry with me and it was a thing that I was kind of carrying when I was there and thinking about like there's a whole bunch of us from the US mainland here in Waikiki at this resort yeah um, absorbing this and maybe people's different political or social views are different but um how do we, how do we gather this as humans and honor it? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you have to fight. Like, I imagine, like with my biology hat on, like yeah. the same reason, this similar parts of our brain where easy to trigger, where like we can other people, yeah. like even among people of color, right? Like that same parts of the brain are the ones that are triggered to like fight to protect what's ours to fight to protect our traditions and i think particularly where we are now at this point in time like if we think about the first peoples here in this country a generation or two generations ago nobody thought that like sending their young people to boarding schools and cutting them off from their elders, their language, their culture was yeah. a bad thing. Yeah. But we are in this space nowadays where we're just like WTF, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so I think there's also a moment now 
um, where different like indigenous campaigns or movements can benefit from I think a more diverse global perspective than before which was just like let's colonize other countries for their resources yeah yeah and like what what does that mean right to be like a Filipino American for example to go to another country or like for me whose land was taken over by other people for like 450 years to now be living like in Kawia land Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying like to hold those tensions and to be honest with oneself and like what does that mean for me what how does that mean for me to show up as an ally for certain movements Um, what does it mean to really stand up for like the collective yeah Yeah, I know it it is it's it's a I mean there's a consciousness thing of it and then there's how to how to act upon it and there's also I mean this the real I mean the not real there's another tension of that is that realistically we're so far gone I think it's like in my line of work it's like taking advantage of opportunities when they present themselves like there are windows in time when certain issues like this is the time to move a particular agenda right and I think the really experienced people are the ones who can identify when those points in time are happening. Yeah. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert at that yeah. at my point in my career, but there are people out there who are. And as an example of that, like I just read, a, it was like a KQED article or something, and I think it's a tribe somewhere up off the north coast. And they actually worked with the local, it was either city council or the county board of supervisors there um, to basically over the years they've been working on it and it finally became official they were able to buy back this island uh, that isn't habitable but it's used for spiritual ceremonies and in the article there were quotes from the local elected officials there of not just like um, you know doing it because they're bound by history to do it but also like the moral imperative for them in the current historical context You know, and so I think, you know, I'm not like hyper optimistic and saying like everyone's down to change things. I'm just saying that compared to like our parents' generation or the generation before that, there's more of an openness now than there was then. And hopefully for our kids, there will be even more of an openness later than now. Yeah, I was going to thank you for the segue. (laughs) Because, I mean, you you're in a line of work that carries a lot of values. There's lots of people in politics that are that thrive by politics as sport. Correct. And there's also people who do it because it's like um, a high value profession. Like some people there are do who do it for right. the political sport to have the power. Yeah. There are also people who like maybe who are legislative staff where you you're not compensated all too well, and so this is your chance to like save up money to buy a house or whatever and it's not out of any malice per se and so there's a mix of uh, different people in my line of work that come that way it's just that like you know if you're someone who works at the grocery store as a job to get a paycheck that's not like creating laws that massively incarcerate brown and black people (laughs) right right, right. Right? Right. so the the stakes are different I think in the profession yeah yeah Yeah. Um, but you 
I feel. I mean, from what I know of you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a. This is a value-driven. I mean, this is. You're not just doing this for yourself. You're not just doing this because it's a high for you. You're not just doing this for whatever reason. But there is a larger, bigger picture of impact. Um, and so, how does that carry? How has it, or does it carry over to your brief, so far brief stint as a father, right? How old is your daughter? When it almost one and a half. Almost one and a half. Yeah. So she's much younger than yours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, at least first off, it's really given me renewed fire. Um, like my the place from where I do this work is really out of a place of anger Um, and I think that being a father and you know having my daughter has added a variation to that which is good because I don't necessarily know if it's healthy for all my work to be rooted out of a place of anger so it's also through fatherhood now also elements of like compassion you know and and trying to come at it also from a standpoint of not just fixing wrongs but building something better for the future yeah how um so you have the the anger which gets an ongoing anger for certain communities yeah and i grew up in a part of the state where it was like this was like trump in the Inland Empire in California, like when I was growing up, right. this what we're what the nation is experiencing now. Like, this was us. We had neo Nazis out and about right. when I was growing up, long before Trump. So, yeah. yeah, and that's why I kind of check myself on that because I was just thinking about you know like you hear comments about we're we're in such a polarized society now, or we don't know how to talk to each other anymore, or we who or who we? yeah yeah right yes. Yes, there's le- there's a generational impact in the in the Civil Rights Act and the Immigration Act of you know, 64, 65. That didn't change everything, yeah. right? And even then, anyway. Long no, I, have a, I have a cousin-in-law. <laughs> um, like his kids are brought up really great. Like some, for folks who listen to the show, my wife is white. We met in the Peace Corps. She's a solid ally for POCs. Yeah. We wouldn't be together otherwise, right? Um, and she has a cousin where, you know, everything would point towards, like, him not supporting Trump. And one year he was visiting because his youngest son was participating in a basketball tournament in the Bay Area. And I came home and, like, my wife had, like, this pissed off look on her face. And she told me later, she was like, yeah, I just found out that he voted for Trump. And she had this long conversation with him. And to your point about, like, who is the we, he basically described it as, like, you know, Bush was president, nothing changed for me. Obama was president, nothing changed for me. It only seemed like whether I voted for Clinton or Trump, like, things would change for me either way. And then she had to, like, break it down for him. Like, at that time, it was still pretty new in the administration, so it was, like, look at the Muslim ban, look at all this. And then even having to explain to him, like, undocumented Americans do pay taxes. It's something called an ITIN. And, you know, rates of crime in immigrant communities are actually less than rates of crime in native-born populations. So um, 
it's interesting like that that group that voted for Trump is also widely diverse because they also include people like my cousin-in-law who wasn't like I hate immigrants or I'm anti-taxes right, right, right. he was just like it doesn't really matter to me I'm going to vote for the guy who really stirs up something inside of me not out of like a place of race or anything but just because I think it's entertaining yeah. As a, we'll get back to the kids but like, yeah. I, I think there's <laughs> There's a troubling thing for me where it's like uh, the I'll, I'll just say I don't, I'm not even gonna like I just feel like there's a lot of people who are privileged and oftentimes white folks we carry our own privilege right as men as uh, people with uh, professional jobs all that stuff living in the Bay Area somehow affording rent and stuff yeah. so we have, we carry our own privilege but there's a privilege of not worrying about how politics will actually affect you as an individual aside from what we said later like earlier like there's taxes there's lights there's whatever yeah but your core existence isn't is rarely going to get challenged in terms of danger or comfort by politics i think there's privilege like that needs to be unpacked in terms of like there's privileges that you are born with and there are privileges that you're earned and most of the privileges that you talked about like have been earned by us and some of which are we're born with like our gender and in other cases like they're not and the ones that are earned are trumped by the ones that you're born with as we know right like right you're wife is also has like a master's degree and she probably also faces barriers in the professional space that you wouldn't because she's a woman and you're a man and like you know when we bought our house to stay in oakland to keep from getting displaced because we used to rent around lake Merritt. Uh, we've been in east oakland for about four years now and i jumped on next door just because i wanted to like know who my neighbors were kind of thing and sure enough like i my non-professional clothes are much different than my professional ones so i was wearing like you know my undergrad hoodie which isn't even just like a nondescript hoodie right it's got like ucr emblazoned on the chest and sure enough like within that first week that i was there someone went on next door and was like uh you know five foot something males checking out cars be safe with your belongings make sure to take them out and i'm like I live here. <laughs> I know, right. Yeah. Right. And that's like, that's nothing compared to like, like black folks who are getting gunned down with cell phones or getting choked to death for selling s- singles, right? And so how does that, coming back to our kids, there's the value in the work and does the, we talk about like anger points and, you know, anger driven work and then trying to change that kind of dichotomy and you know I interviewed one of my friends a couple episodes ago and he was talking about how he loves watching CNN but there's a lot of um, anger when you watch news channels Mm -hmm. because the way it's presented is always debate and loud voices and not just the anger itself but the, the work itself coming home and like you know with, with the time that you have with your daughter because you know you can't you, can, you say you can turn it off but you can't turn it off if it's yeah. value driven you know. I think I'm fortunate to be working at a spot 
where I both enjoy my colleagues and also like the type of work that I do. And given that it's a equity driven firm, like I'm not working for clients I wouldn't otherwise. Um, and so I think that helps. Uh, my wife has told me since starting at this job, which I've been at for about two months now, I've been a lot less stressed out at home, a lot more myself. Um, so I agree with you. I don't think there is such a thing where you can turn it on and off. And I also think that I'm compelled, particularly on days when I go to Sacramento, for like that hour that I'm with my daughter in the morning or that hour that I'm with her before she goes to bed. Like, I'm hyper-focused on quality time with her. And so in that way, it, it doles out the realities of the line of work that I do. Yeah. yeah. But it sounds like, you know, it's a, it's a, I guess it's a trope you could say with people that say you do what you love and it's not a job. It's always a job. Whatever. It's always a job for sure. But <laughs> there is a peace of mind. There's a peace of spirit that you come home and you feel good about what you're doing. Correct. Regardless of like, there are losses. Correct. There are challenges. But if you feel like you're working toward, you're working within something that you believe in, um, it's easier to be yourself and carry that with your daughter. Correct, correct. Because you're not necessarily like um, partitioning who you are, right? And so it does become easier to carry yourself authentically, both at home but also at work. You know, so Hoon and I think we're value-driven parents. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're not perfect. No one is. No one is, for sure. We have our blind spots. And also just... As do we. We we also make whatever decisions, right? You have you have one kid, right? Yeah. So like first time parents, like a lot of that you're kind of learn. At least for Colleen and I, we're learning all of it. Not all of it. We're learning a lot also as we go along, and not in the sense like we're making it up. Like we also solicit input from others, but you also have to take that input and kind of like make it apply to your situation. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're we're figuring things out. Yeah. Right, and so what do you do with your wife? What do you all do in terms of trying to impart this, some of these values? I think one of the things that we're doing is, I can't remember if it was a study or something that I'd seen long ago, but um, they've done studies around like people who grew up in different societies and maybe the structure of their language and how that can inform yes. even their relations to others. Yeah. And so it's one of the ways that my wife and I are approaching bringing up our daughter is um, trying to have her also maintain at least a conversational level of Tagalog. And my wife is concurrently learning it with her too. And like as she grows older, they'll go to like the Bayanihan Center in San Francisco and they'll go to like the Tagalog classes together and so it's one of the ways that we're um, trying to imbue that because through I think speaking Tagalog opens conversations into like Filipino history or pre-colonial post-colonial history connecting with her grandparents who are from the Philippines and like most of our family still lives in the homeland and so like when we make those rare trips out there because of the cost of her being able to like as a half 
as a biracial kid of being able to connect deeply with that side, given that 24-7 she's here. I'm going to just jump in right here. I think it's a perfect time to let you know that Anton and I are going to be participating in Filipino Storytime, which is presented by the Tagalog Project. It's going to be at Pinole Public Library on January 25th from 3 to 4.30 p.m. We're going to read a story, and Clarice, who runs the Tagalog Project, will read it in Tagalog and the reason why she does the Filipino story times are to one it's to get, provide some Tagalog to parents who, um, who want to pass that on to their children and develop that vocabulary for themselves and for their children and to also talk about parenting and Filipino culture with other parents so I think that is perfect I forgot to tell Justin but I will make sure he knows about it in case he doesn't listen to his own episode check out the Tagalog project on Facebook and Instagram at the Tagalog project right yeah yeah so I think language is one way given that she's so young she's only a year and a half and then uh, some of the other ways are just um, basic things that you know, like kids experience from the day to day of like sharing <laughs> as an only child. Like so when our friends bring their kids over, we go over to friends houses and stuff of um, trying to coach her through these experiences where like if a kid comes up and like takes whatever she's playing with of being like, it's OK, they're just sharing and leave it up for the other parent to decide whether or not their kid was appropriate yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah although I did see the craziest thing yeah. and this kind of relates to the driving force of your podcast of like fatherhood so there's this park up by our house in East Oakland it's off of Redwood Road and it's it's interesting because there are wealthier people up in the hills and sometimes when their kids age out of certain toys or whatever they leave them at the park oh, yeah. so there's like little truck car thingies that people can ride in addition to like the actual park facilities and one day that we were there with Lilimo there was a father with his child and a mother with her both of them were sons and and the son of the mother came over and we don't know if they had been playing earlier right but we were there when this particular incident happened and the one kid just started yanking on the hair of the other kid like hard and the kid was like ow ow looking up at his dad and the dad didn't do anything and i was just like i i didn't know how to like process it because like you know the the kid was mixed race and the kid whose hair was getting pulled and his father were white so was he not doing something out of patriarchy like man up protect yourself i mean these kids were only like four years old maybe in terms of like that question of like parenting and how do you bring your parent bring your kids up like that was like a hyperbole of the craziness that it could be we make it a purpose to keep an eye on everyone try to be friendly um, engage the kids that are there yeah one because it's fun but two it's also like so that 
Malcolm can see that we're talking to everyone. And, you know, it's a shared space. You have to figure out how to share the space. Yeah. You don't have to be like an extrovert if you're an introvert, yeah. but you have to know how to share a space. And you know, and I don't think we do it consciously. It's just that something that we value. I think living by example is is key too, because just even in this brief time, like kids are so perceptive. Yeah. And Lily Mo, it, even with how young she is, like things that we may have done like only once, like she'll mimic. She, well, he, yeah, they they too, they pick up on so much, and it's like oh. And so as they get older, they're starting to see like more the complex interactions and things like that. And so yeah, there's I, there's probably no better way to show than to show by example. Yeah. Is there anything that you're into? Yeah, so I, I saw this. Um, I saw that you're into like pop culture and like uh, wrestling and comic books and stuff. But I actually was into comic books too growing up. My favorite was Spider-Man just because I was like a nerdy type and he was like also younger right teenager character most of them were like old, older adults and um, you know and back in the 90s they didn't have like all the they had Black Panther and that was it he may have been my sister actually or there's this uh, Facebook page by this professor who wrote the book Latinos in Asia which is about like the Filipino diaspora and maybe it was through that Facebook page where there was news of the first Filipino character called Wave Yeah, for the new agents of Atlas so I actually um, for War of the Realms which is a four part series four part book um, I bought Lily Mo the four and I, there are I think three of the actual new agents of Atlas so them their own storyline now and so I've been buying them at this comic book shop that's by the state building Cape and Cowell, Cowell yeah. yeah, and so uh, that's kind of what am I doing? Because I want to. I feel like my imagine benef- imagination benefited from comic books, yeah. and I want Lily Mo to also have the opportunity with actually a character who has like the same skin tone and you know from the Philippines. And thankfully, the female characters aren't as like cleavage and all that as the 90s ones. Yeah. The ones that they're drawing now are more toned, toned down. What is one like tangible moment where you felt like fatherhood changed you? Yeah. So I'm not very emotional person. Um, I can probably count like on one hand the times that I've cried in my entire life. And I think that is one way I don't think I would have ever been able to change in that way of becoming more emotional though there's you know my my wife will tell you like I have definitely a lot more work to grow in terms of my emotional IQ which I don't dispute like I I think that's accurate and even before Lily Mo was born I was at this event where they were showing um, a documentary and it was specific to the Khmer Rouge. And you know, I've, you know, being in social justice spaces, you see hella shit. You know, I've seen really bad stuff in Peace Corps. Like, I watch violent movies, you know, not like violent, but you know, like action movies or things like that. Um, and so it's not like there's been a lack of things that 
could not have prior elicited an emotional response and then in that documentary of just seeing like you know the b-roll of like the families in the fields and like the people talking about it like I, I started like for me this is a big thing even though it's not really like started like really tearing up as I was watching the documentary and I was like oh wow like I'm I'm changing in unexpected ways um, and I think in ways that hopefully will make me a better person. Move. Move.